to Blacklight Mass Incarceration Show. I am your host, Sierra Cobb. Blacklight Mass Incarceration Show is a space that is used to uplift the unheard voices of the criminal and social justice issues that many face today. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy. Good afternoon. I have today with me on the Black Light Mass Incarceration, Thomas. Say your last name for me because I don't want to butcher it. Dibdoll. Dibdoll. And he is, well, I'll actually let you introduce yourself to the audience and let them tell you a little about yourself and what you do and what you used to do and those things. Sure. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I am a former public defender. I was a public defender in Philadelphia and in D.C. mostly for 13 years. And since I retired, I've been working on writing a book uh, that was published a couple of months ago that focuses on a particular issue that when I was a public defender came up a lot. And uh, that is, I think, very instrumental in convicting a lot of people, which is that prosecutors very commonly hide evidence that should be disclosed and so I ended up writing a book about it. The legal principle is called the Brady Rule. And uh, that's what my my book is titled. Uh, I, I'll hold it up. So <laughs> uh, my book is called When Innocence is Not Enough, Hidden Evidence and the Failed Promise of the Brady Rule. So that's just come out. And my hope is that it will draw attention to how powerful the Brady Rule violations uh, are in terms of causing wrongful convictions. Exactly. I, I agree so much. If you don't mind and if you feel comfortable, can you kind of walk us through like some of the things you've seen in your 13 years of being a public defender, just with prosecution, even other public defenders, how they have helped or how they have failed to help their clients? Sure. Public defenders, I think in general, have a bad name and it's probably earned because in so many places, they are hugely overworked and understaffed. They have an enormous volume of cases. They can't possibly give each case the attention that it deserves. Uh, I think the great majority of them do the very best that they can, but so much of our system is focused on efficiency of just getting as many cases through as possible. So uh, the vast majority of criminal cases are resolved through plea bargain, probably as, as high as 97 or 98 percent. And sometimes that can be a good thing, obviously, that people, if if they are guilty and there is powerful evidence against them, they can maybe benefit from a plea deal. But far too many cases that should not be pled out are because the consequences of going to trial are, are are very great. Sometimes you can get as much as 10 times uh, a tougher sentence for a, after a trial and being convicted than you would get from pleading guilty because the, the system is designed for guilty people. It works okay if you're truly guilty. Uh, you probably get a benefit from pleading. But it's a terrible system for innocent people because there's heavy pressure on them to plead. And particularly if you have a public defender for your lawyer who you know is overworked, who you know hasn't spent very much time on your case, and who tells you you better plead because if you go to trial, you could get you know, 10, 20, 30, 50 years. And if we plead, maybe you'll get uh, only a fraction of that. It's a powerful temptation, and lots of innocent people plead guilty because they fear, and probably rightly so, the consequences of going to trial, uh, particularly with a public defender. I was very blessed to work at the D.C. Public Defender Service, which, not because of me, but just in general, is considered the best public defender office in the country because of the way it has evolved we had very manageable caseloads. I had a full-time investigator that worked for me in investigating cases. And because of that, I was able in most cases to 
maybe not give all the attention I would have dreamed of giving, but to really focus on cases and try them. But that's exceedingly rare for public defenders. Uh, not only are they overworked, but they have very limited resources for investigators, for expert witnesses. Uh, and so uh, in, in almost every sense, poor people and particularly predominantly people of color in this country, when they get assigned a public defender, the quality of their defense is poor to middling at best and they pay the price of that. And when we look at who's in prison in this country and who's serving these long sentences, you can see the results of that system. Exactly. Um, and I think that's what a lot of people don't understand is, is that the state gives a lot more money to the prosecution than they give to the public defender's office. And we know why it's set up like that. It's set up like that because they know that they can keep more people in prison if you don't have the full attention and, and all the resourceful information you need to actually defend that case. Because a lot of a lot of public defenders have between, can you give us a number of murder cases that one public defender could have? <laughs> um, I, I really didn't work in a lot of different places. So I'm only guessing, but, but I do know that people are just overwhelmed. And you talk about resources. I mean, obviously the state, they have the police who are on the scene early investigating. They have detectives who investigate. They have money to hire experts. They have lab, criminal labs and experts in ballistics and, and you know, dr drug testing, all, all of these things. And they just routinely say, all right, I need this, I need that. Whereas when you're a public defender uh, in most places, you have to petition the court, say, I need an expert to look into this issue. And if you can't really prove why you need it, they'll deny you because it's more money for the for the state. So it's a it's a very unequal uh, playing field. And that's one of the reasons why the Brady rule is so important when it says prosecutors are supposed to disclose any favorable evidence they find. It's a small way of trying to at least level the playing field a little bit and saying with all your resources, if you find some information that suggests that this person might be innocent, you're supposed to disclose it to try to make the system a little more fair. Unfortunately, that's often honored more in the breach than in the reality, and they just don't follow the rule. Yes, and that is why you have a lot of people that are wrongfully convicted, and you have a lot of people who are innocent and because the state, because you got to understand prosecutors are automatically think you're guilty, whether you're innocent or guilty, their mind frame is you're guilty. And if they see any bit of evidence that does not point to your guilt, a lot of them don't want to turn that over because they want that guilty verdict. And so the more, the way it works is, is the, the criminal justice system is more political. It's not really about justice. It's about a political game. So if you have prosecutors who are prosecuting people and getting um, convictions, then they use that when it comes up to election season. That's one of their main things that they use is, oh, well, I have a conviction rate of this and this and that. And so that sways the people when they really don't understand what is going on inside of our criminal justice system. And we have to, under, as, as the people in the community, understand that we can't let the justice system be up under political leadership because it's not about politics. It's about making sure that you are convicting the right people if they did commit the crime and that you're protecting the ones who didn't commit the crime. And those lines have gotten really, really blurred for a very long time. And so I am hearing that a lot of prosecutors are asking that they get paid way more than public, or they want a raise now, even now they want a raise and they don't want the public defender's office to get more funding because we, we know that if they do, then they will be able to, at least to some extent, be able to um, defend their defendant a little bit better than the prosecution can. And so a lot of courts just don't like that because they, they, get, they get one track mind and they automatically think, okay, well, this person is guilty instead of saying, well, let's both hunt for the truth, as I think you said in your book. Let's both hunt for the truth and make sure the person that we have is the right person, but they don't do that. Um, and so what you were speaking of was exculpatory evidence. Can you kind of 
for the ones who don't know what exculpatory evidence is, can you kind of explain to them what that is? And I don't know if you're able to explain, but how are people supposed, especially post-conviction, like how are people supposed to find out if there was evidence that was held from them? Sure. Well, that's sort of two parts. Let me first try to explain as clearly and simply as I can what, what the Brady rule said. It basically said the prosecution finds favorable evidence that's material to guilt or punishment that should be disclosed. And the way it's kind of sorted out is the court says there are three parts of a Brady violation. First, there has to have been evidence that was we use the word exculpatory, but basically just favorable, that would have uh, been favorable, helpful to the defendant in a case. So there has to be that kind of information. Second, the information had to be withheld or at least not disclosed. So those two steps are pretty easy to decide. Was there favorable evidence and was it not disclosed? But the courts have said that the third requirement is that it has to be material to guilt or punishment. And the way they've ended up, they, they tried and tried to define what is material. And I think in, initially it was just meant to mean, it, is it relevant? Is it related to the case? But the courts have said, no, it's Evidence is only material if there is a reasonable possibility it would have changed the outcome of the case. Well, you don't have to be a lawyer to say how kind of vague and slippery is that. A reasonable probability it would have changed the outcome. Well, a standard that that vague and, and sort of uncertain and even confusing, you can justify almost anything. I mean, one person's opinion is, well, I, I don't think it would have changed the outcome. Someone else could say, well, I, I think it would have. It, it's just a very malleable, uh, slippery uh, standard. So what happens time and time and time again, someone will raise a claim saying this evidence was favorable. It should have been disclosed. And the court will look at it and say, you know, you're right. It was favorable. It should have been disclosed, but maybe five, 10, even 30 years later, we can't say for sure if it would have changed the outcome. So basically, no harm, no foul. We're not going to do anything about it. We're not going to give the defendant any relief because we can't say it would have changed the outcome. And that happens at least 85% of the time with a legitimate Brady claim that there was clearly evidence that should have been disclosed. So if you're a prosecutor, what do you take from that? You take from that that if you're not sure and you don't want to disclose something that could hurt your case, don't hand it over. And probably, you know, the great majority of the time, nothing will happen. So they don't do it. And in response to the second part of your question, very often we never, ever know about that because the information's in the hands of the prosecutor. So if they hide something, how do you know? Well, very often you don't. And only in, in some cases it may come out, you know, who knows how, a year later, 10 years later, for whatever reason, even when we find out, usually the court won't do anything. But we have no idea. In fact, people compare it to an iceberg, the typical thing that the number of Brady violations we know about are, are the ones that are above the sea level, but the 80, 90, who, who knows how many remain hidden that we never know about. And in the case that I write about mostly in my book, the murder of Catherine Fuller in Washington, D.C. Uh, in 1984, eight young black men were convicted for that murder. I, I think they were all absolutely innocent. Uh, and there was some key information withheld. It wasn't for, it, it took essentially 30 years and in large part luck and a relentless Washington Post reporter. And then finally the Innocence Project getting involved for this information to come out. And by then it was so far gone, the court said, well, you know, it should have been disclosed, but we can't say it would have made a difference. So tough luck. And, and and those people were convicted as well. 
So <laughs> yes, they were convicted and their convictions stand to this day, even though there was crucial Brady evidence that the government withheld. And the court said it should have been disclosed. So what are your opinions on what you think that private attorneys or public defenders can do to, I guess, counteract that? Do you think there's anything that could be done or it's just, it's just a matter of changing the law? Well, uh, obviously, the more time you have to work on a case, the more you can dive into it, the more investigation that you can do, uh, the better chance you have of learning about this kind of information. But often, as long as the discovery laws, and, and just so people understand that we, what we call discovery is the, the legal term for information in a criminal case, and that the prosecution is required by rules in, in virtually all states to disclose some evidence to the defense. And that's called, again, discovery. Give, give them some discovery. Some of the, the police reports, there's other information, like if you have a witness statement, usually if you have grand jury testimony of a person before that person testifies, you know, you have to disclose that. So there are some disclosure requirements, but in a lot of places, they're very limited. They don't have to tell you about who the witnesses might be. They don't have to tell you anything about what their testimony might be. Um, they do have to disclose expert witnesses. But again, so there, there are rules about things that must be disclosed. But if prosecutors want to withhold information, often that no matter how much work a lawyer might do, uh, how, how do you know that? You know, you might happen on it. But if you don't know, let, let's say there's a, a murder, someone shoots another person, and there's people around, right? If uh, if you're not right on the scene, stopping people from leaving or or seeing who's there, you know, how can later on, if 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 a lawyer gets the case, someone's arrested a week later, and they want to investigate, unless your client knows who was all around there. How do you find those people? You know, you can knock on doors and they, but the police have already done that probably if, if that was relevant. So it, it's just very, very difficult. And that's why I think we have to have laws that require prosecutors to disclose all the, rel all the information in their files, because as long as they control the flow of information, as long as they're not absolutely required to share everything, uh, they're going to be conflicted because, in you know, you earlier referred to all the, there is a lot of, of politics and involved always. But the fact is, I, I think I, I, I don't want to paint all, all many prosecutors are, I, I think, conscientious are serious about their jobs. They want to do justice. But we have a very adversarial system, and you don't advance as a prosecutor by losing cases after you share favorable information with the defense. You advance and get reelected if you're uh, elected by winning cases. And as you said earlier, that's what they say. Look at my winning percentage. Very few bosses would call one of their underlings in and say, great job, you handed over some Brady information that helped the defense and you lost the case, but you did the right thing. So I'm I'm going to promote you. I'm going to praise you for doing that. But in theory, their client is justice. But obviously, when they bring a case in their mind, the person is they're bringing a case because they think this person is guilty. Uh, I, I don't think Many prosecutors ever say, I, I'm going to try to convict this guy, even though I know he's innocent, just because I want to convict somebody. Uh, they convince themselves this person is, is guilty, and therefore they can do whatever they need to do to see them get convicted. Uh, I don't think very many prosecutors are able to say, 
I'm just going to present my evidence. But if I lose, that means it wasn't a good case and, you know, justice has been done. So I'm happy. That's just not how it works. And then sometimes, too, it's not all on the prosecutors. It could also be that the investigators didn't hand over everything to the prosecutor. Because sometimes you have police misconduct when it comes to invest actually investigating the cases. Because as you said, they're the very first ones on the scene. They're the ones gathering the evidence to turn over to the prosecution for them to be able to go to, you know, go to trial and convict and then go on and forth, so forth. But, I mean, a lot of times it's, it's the police as well. They're not handing over everything or... They're not collecting all the evidence, all the evidence that they should, or um, even going to all the witnesses that they should. But you, I, I know that now. Have you ever come across in any of your cases? I'm hearing now a new trend, which is called junk science. I know that I've seen a lot of people write more and more about junk science and people being prosecuted off of junk science and then can actually get a conviction. Have you ran across that or heard any junk science stories? I mean, because you know, when you think about it and you have these experts that the prosecution bring on and they're getting paid a lot of money, you know, you're like, oh, they're an expert. They went to school for this. They know what they're doing. But now it seems like that a lot of the experts or the expert witnesses or information that they're getting can be made up. Yeah. Fortunately, there has been, as you pointed out, a lot more focus on that. And I, I think in a lot of jurisdictions, however, there still is very discredited, quote, science that is being promoted as as valid. In D.C., again, which, which I know best, there was a little of that. But judges were usually pretty careful about the kind of physical expert testimony they would allow. Uh, I think the really big issues, one has been bite mark evidence which uh, particularly has been used in the South to convict a number of people, which is, I, I think, pretty much agreed as totally bogus now. Uh, another area has been arson, where for a long time there were claims that they could tell if, if a fire was started with an accelerant or not. And I think that the expert views on arson have completely changed almost in the past 10 years. Another example, and one of the ones we did see in D.C. was Shaken Baby. And several of my colleagues had case Shaken Baby cases uh, where experts would testify that that was the cause of death. And in fact, again, I think within the, the last three or four years, at least, it's become clear that that evidence is very questionable and, and is not worthy of being being relied upon. So that's that's something common. And something that particularly in Texas, and this is more, I, I guess it qualifies as junk science, was testimony about future dangerousness, that they would say, this person should get the death penalty or get a life sentence because we predict that they would, that, that even in 10 or 20 years, they would still be a very dangerous person because of A, B, C, D, A. You, you know, you can imagine how, how can you possibly know that? So that's one, at least one, one part of it. But I think even other things like hair evidence, which has been shown to be very iffy, unless you can get DNA from it. But along with that, even the science that I think is fairly or, or is legitimate, like, for example, DNA, We've seen how labs and lab technicians can mess that up. And that unless it's handled extremely carefully, that it it can lead to, to incorrect results. And it very often does. And the same is true with ballistics. Uh, ba basically, all of the science expert kind of testimony that have been has been relied on in the past. Uh, much of it is highly questionable, and all of it is subject to very careful control and testing. And if that isn't done, it can lead to wrong results, and it very often does. Yes. Um, yeah. And I think even the tire tire tracks is another one I've seen where a guy was convicted off the tire tracks, and the tire tracks just it wasn't even credible. And so he was convicted off of that. So 
yeah, just having, just understanding that there's always two sides to the story because, you know, we always hear, you know, we always hear, especially see on TV that people get convicted off of DNA, um, ballistics and things of that nature. But understanding that um, the people that are handling it not always handle it with extreme care, because as you said, that it has to be handled in the correct way. And some of some of the times the expert witnesses drop that ball, like whoever's handling that information drops that ball. And so you do have a lot of people that are now starting to be convicted or are coming back and looking at their cases because, I mean, the science wasn't, wasn't accurate. I actually remember a case that happened in the early 90s where both of the prosecution and defense were going back and forth about phone records. Like one had, you know, phone records that the person made the call to the person that was going to commit the crime. And the defense had their phone call record and it had no, none of those numbers on there. And so they went, literally went back and forth with that for, for days. And so just imagine being a juror because you got to understand that the jurors are people that just come out the street. You know, they don't know anything about law and law is something that's really hard. It's, it could be complicated to understand. And so sure. Um, sure. having people that come off the street who really don't know, you know, anything about, you know, legal systems or anything of that nature you know, can easily be influenced by what they either see on the defense or what they see on the prosecution. And so a lot of people aren't really given a fair trial. I mean, you know, like you said, it's, it's but you've been, you're in a rock and a hard place um, when you are involved in the legal system, because sometimes, you know, if you are guilty, you can get a plea deal and it help you out. But then sometimes when you're not guilty, you get a plea deal and then you're just stuck. I thank you for just really kind of explaining those things out to the audience because a lot of people don't understand law and it's it's very hard to understand. I was I actually had a conversation with Hunter Purnell who runs PD Defenseless Podcast. And I was asking him, you know, like what can public defenders do to kind of change things up and get on a, a better pace? And he said that he thinks that them getting out in the media and just I guess kind of explaining, not explaining, but just showing that the people who wasn't guilty or was innocent, kind of just being in the media, because, you know, you see a lot of prosecutors in the media talking about cases all the time. They're always in the media talking about cases, but you barely see public defenders or even private attorneys come into the media. And so um, I had suggested that maybe, because I know that some public defenders and private attorneys can't say anything because they have the judge will put a gag order in where they can't talk to the media. Right. Right. And so what I did was I had a guy that was convicted, just like my husband, uh, or was being convicted of capital murder. And all the evidence pointed that he was not there. The only evidence that they had was the co-defendant saying that he was there and supposedly um, the lineup pick out. And that's another thing that we're going to talk about is the lineups. What I did was because the attorney couldn't say anything. They had put a gag order in, so he couldn't say anything. But of course, the prosecutors was you know on TV talking about it with the news and so forth and so on. So I was his advocate and we did a press conference with his family and we just humanized him as a person. And so by us humanizing him as a person and also his capital public defender just really believing that he was innocent. Like he's like, he didn't do this crime. Like, you know, he might have did things before, but this one he just did not do. Um, and having the public defender to understand that he was innocent we came in and did a press conference and let the family just talk about who he was as a person. And so it was maybe three or four weeks before he went to trial. So he went to trial for capital murder and he was found not guilty. I think it was like six to one. They came back with not guilty for capital murder. And they were going to try him again because this prosecutor wanted him. Now, North and the South, our prosecutors are a little different. Now, I'm not going to say all of them are the same, but a lot of them will go after people because they they've been in the system prior or they've seen them prior. And so his public, his, his prosecutor used to be his attorney before he switched over. And so Ooh. he had told him before, if I was a prosecutor, I would have convicted you. So we had already knew yeah. where that was going to go. And so they tried to take him back for second degree murder. And I just kept, you know, not being relentless, but just kept putting his story out there and saying, you know, free Lester, he didn't do it. And then by the news actually preview on what was going on and they were there at the trial they was there at his pre-trial hearing and letting you know the whole world see the evidence um right before they were going to take him back to court for second degree murder they came up with a nice plea deal which now this plea deal i agree with because um he got 14 years where he could have got life plus 20 because he had a, a felony gun charge in another county uh, so he would have got life plus 20 
but he only got 14. He was in jail before everything got resolved for six years. So all he has to do is not. But honestly, I don't think if I wouldn't have been in the picture and the organization that I work for, if we didn't do that press conference, he probably would have been found guilty on capital murder. And so that's the difference. I think that maybe if public defenders reach out to the community organizations like Emancipate and, and community organizations that are doing this work to help them change the narrative for the client, I think that people can start getting a more fair trial, especially in the South. Um, because like I said, you, it's just a lot of attorneys who are public defenders who just go after certain people for whatever reason. I mean, they just get one track minded and they'd be like, oh, well, they committed this crime before. They they had to do this one. And so, you know, being able to help people get a fair and just trial, reaching out to other organizations that that is doing the work that can help you change that narrative for your client, I think is important. What do you think? I, 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 I certainly agree that that's a problem. I, I think it's just tricky that when you're dealing with the media, it kind of can go e either way. And I didn't always agree. In, in D.C., we had a rule that we we were not really allowed to speak to the media and press about a case uh, without express permission in a particular instance to do it. And there were certainly times I disagreed with that. I think that some some cases, particularly high profile cases where people already know about it. And if a lawyer doesn't talk to the media, then people are only hearing one side. They're just hearing a drumbeat of guilt and this was a terrible thing and this person did it and so on. But at the same time, I think if you put someone out there, uh, put a case out there, sometimes I think that can maybe go a different way and people can can see oh this guy already has a rec or this guy's already done this and you know how people think that you know well but then he must have done it again so uh, i i do think that there are things that i i think defense lawyers can do much more of but i think a, a lot of that is really focusing more on really investigating their case and knowing their case and preparing their case. And, and that's almost impossible to do given the money. I mean, I, I think what I'd like to see, certainly far more money allocated to public defense, public defenders should probably be paid more than prosecutors because they, they have to work harder if they're doing their job. They have bigger caseloads, they have more, you know, the fate of these people depending on them. And we want to pay them, you know, pittance. You know, I, I would love to see them advocating for, for more money. And, you know, there have been times, I mean, I even think kind of actions where, I mean, you could jam up the system. If some public defender said, you know, I've got all, I, I'm not going to do any more pleas until we get more money and more resources. Uh, the system would grind to a halt. The problem is our clients would then suffer because, you know, if these people are sitting in jail waiting a resolution and you're saying, all right, I'm not going to do any more, please. I'm going to jam up the system. I, I think given the mood of a lot of the country and the project people just, okay, let these people just rot in jail, even though many of them are probably innocent uh, or many of them have committed relatively minor crimes that they would never end up getting a jail sentence for anyway. But it's just very, the problem with public defenders uh, in general are in the system are relatively powerless compared to judges and prosecutors. And that's again why I think we really have to have just far more disclosure of information. It's one of the few ways that can help at least make the system more fair if we make prosecutors disclose all the information that they find. Because then at least the defense lawyer can get the benefit of police work, the detective work, and so on. And I think you have a fair chance then, but also to decide even about a plea. I mean, you talked about people taking pleas. In the vast majority of instances, there's there's very minimal disclosure requirements before a, a plea. So suppose, you know, the prosecutors, they often do very early on, well, let's resolve this case with a plea. 
And you want to say, all right, well, what's, what evidence do you have against my client? And they're saying, well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm offering you this plea. I'm not going to disclose all my evidence to you. And, you know, they they always claim, well, maybe your, your client, your client knows what he did. Well, maybe he doesn't exactly know what he did in ter- he or she did in terms of, of what happened in terms of guilt. And even in terms of what, you know, what evidence is out there. And so you're, you're pleading in the dark. Uh, um, I mean, we, back to all, I was just doing some research on the system in New York, uh, you know, not in the South, obviously you think of New York as a more progressive, maybe state, a blue state, but their discovery laws until very recently were called the blindfold law because you were going to trial or taking a plea without having any idea of what the evidence was. And how can that be fair? Now, there have been some significant reforms in New York, but the prosecutors there and the conservative politicians and the conservative media are trying to go back to the old way. They're saying, oh, this is this is why crime is rising, which is, is baloney, but that's, you know, it scares people. You know, we, we just, we have to find ways to make the system fairer. And I think there are many instances where media attention can help a defendant. I think there are other cases where it hurts, but I don't think that's going to end up changing the system. I think it's only going to be when people realize how unfair it is, because it's not a liberal or conservative issue if people who are innocent are going to jail for years and decades or even to death row for crimes they didn't commit. Uh, No one defends that, says, oh, that's a great system when we're (laughs) convicting lots of innocent people. Uh, People Now, they may say, I don't think we're convicting very many innocent people, and that's why we have to publicize those those kinds of cases. But uh, we really need to take significant steps to make the system more fair. And that includes, as you've talked about, more money for public defense, and it includes more required disclosure from prosecutors of case information that will enable defendants to know the case against them, to know favorable evidence, to make a decision about whether to go to trial or to take a plea, and to make a trial fair. And those are things that we could do and will only do when we have the will, uh, the public will, the public support to do them. Are you feeling unheard after a negative encounter with a law enforcement officer, sheriff, or correctional officer? Visit the Emancipate NC website to report your encounter. Any individual can use the Emancipate NC form to report a police encounter, upload video, photographs, or other evidence, and share their information with the U.S. Today's National Police Misconduct Database. Share it with your friends and family members and community. Our communities have the wisdom and the data we need to keep us safe from rude police. By crowdsourcing this information, we will be able to analyze departmental trends mobilize campaigns for accountability, and file more effective litigation. Remember, we keep us safe. Sponsored by Emancipate NC. And that's exactly what I was about to say. Um, It takes, as far as getting more money for public defender's office, it's going to take the power of the community to start looking into budgets. Because that's one thing that I, when I first got into this movement, I took a budget class because if you don't understand where your city or state money is going, then we will never be where we need to be because this is your taxpaying dollars. All the money that they're spending on trials is the taxpaying dollars that we pay when we get paid. And so understanding the budget, because you can e- you can easily request the budget from your sheriff's office and it gives you a breakdown of everything that they spent, the money that they've asked for and what they spent that money on. And you can see in a breakdown what they've done. You can do it with your city. And so looking inclusively to see exactly what they're spending money on, because they could be spending money on, like Greensboro spends a lot of money on parking decks downtown. You see what I'm saying? And 
advocating and going to your city town hall meetings and saying, hey, I want this money to go towards public defender's office because my people aren't being represented correctly because the people that are working for them aren't getting paid enough. And in North Carolina, we have public defenders. We also have contracted attorneys because a lot of our smaller counties don't even have a public defender's office. And so um, just being able to have the funds and if the, the power of the people would get behind what is going on and understand the funding, then you can advocate for your funding to go towards your public defender's office so that people are able to have a correct and fair um, defense team. And what I'm seeing is I talked to um, Sam out of Mono Omega, which is an organization in Texas, and they've actually come up with a holistic public defender's office where it's not just on the public defender to represent the defendant. They have a caseworker. They have somebody that's an, uh, an investigator. Like they have a whole range. So it's a whole working team. It's not everything just on your public defender because we know that their caseload is, is very heavy. And so being able to take some of that caseload off and having a full team, just like the prosecutors have, because you have your assistants, district attorneys. And so they have a few of them that help them. It should be the same way with your public defenders and not just your paid lawyer. You should be able to have another attorney, a co-counsel to help you go through a murder case because, I mean, you know, murder cases are two and three years long. Some people can get 2,000 pages worth of discovery. And, you know, you got to go through that on your own if you're a public defender. And then you have maybe like four or five, six, seven murder cases. So you have no time to put your time into each person that you're representing. And that's, that is where a lot of people are being let down. It's not because of the public defender. And sometimes it might be but a lot of times it's just because of their underworked, they're overworked and underpaid. So if they have more of a full team, even if we do the holistic public defender's office, or I know in Durham, we have the preparatory defense, which they come in and they help the public defenders. And it's just, it's another barrier to ensure that somebody is getting a fair trial. They're not just pleading to something um, because and you, even if you do take a plea, you have a right as the defendant to say, I don't want that plea. And then the lawyer has to go back and try to negotiate with the prosecutor. And sometimes the prosecutor might negotiate some better. Sometimes they might give you some worse because you said no to the first one. <laughs> so we do have to, we, we as the community have to make sure that everybody is having a fair and just trial, that everybody is getting treated the same way. People are not getting treated more better than the other and to go back to what you said earlier about them halting and saying, hey, we're not going to take any more plea deals until, you know, y'all do better or you turn over evidence. I think that that could be a possibility if we start doing more bail, bail reform and bail funds, because then people aren't just sitting in jail. They're able to go home and wait um, until their their trial comes up, which, you know, in America, it says you're innocent until proven guilty. But here it's guilty until proven innocent because you have to sit in jail until you have a trial. So basically you're, you're yeah. guilty. So being able to let people go home and having bail reform or even having bail funds, because I know we have a lot of those now, have bail funds where you're able to bail people out who can't post that bond. Um, I think can can kind of help, you know, the public defenders in their way if they say, hey, we're not doing no more plea deals because we're just, that's just not what we're going to do. We want to either go to trial or you're going to give them something fair. And so um, I think that that could be another possibility, but we have to get behind our public defenders as a community. I think that's that's one of the reasons why they've suffered so bad is because people have been working in their own silos. And instead of working in your own silos, we have to work together to ensure that everybody in our community, when they come across the justice system, is able to be able to be treated fairly. Um, I also had an idea of maybe even teaching some some law some law classes in high school, like you have economics and you have, you know, things of that nature, getting people to understand what the law is. So when you, if you do get caught up, that you're not just completely blind. I think that's another thing is nobody knows anything about the law. We depend on our public defenders. We depend on our attorneys. But if we know the law and we know our case, we can also help them as well. So it's it's all, it's it goes both ways. Sure. And I, I think you're exactly right about budgets. I mean, budgets are always political documents. You can see what priorities people have by where they put money. And part of the problem now is if you say, we got to build more jails because you know our jails are overcrowded and we're going to lock more people up. We say, okay, we'll, we'll give money to more, more prisons, more jails. We'll give money to prosecutors. Uh, the police need more money because crime is, you know, we'll give it to police. 
when you say, well, public defenders need more money, no, they don't. You know, that that's not a priority. And we have to make that a priority that the money is there because I think these team concepts that you mentioned are great, but they take money. And I, I think any public defender office in the country would say, we would love to have you know more attorneys. We would love to have more social workers to help our clients. We would love to, to have all these wraparound services, but we can't possibly afford them. We can't even pay our, our attorneys right now a decent wage. So we've got to have more money if we want to do those kinds of things, because I think the few offices that are able to do that, just like you said, have been able to do a far better job representing their clients, getting better outcomes for them, getting treatment for people who need treatment, getting you know, support for families that need all those kinds of things, but they always take money. And until that's some kind of priority, the money won't be there. And no matter how much you wish for it, and no matter how much we know this would be a good thing, Without money, you can't do it. So that's also part of what we've got to be be saying. You know, we we want to claim that our justice system does justice, but it doesn't. Right now, it doesn't. It doesn't find the truth. It doesn't do justice. And uh, until people accept that and are willing to spend the money to make the changes that need to be made, uh, that's going to continue. And so that's why I urge the communities to start just going to a city council meeting and requesting their budgets to see where their priorities are in your city, because you have to, you're going to have to start digging into where they are putting your tax dollars and make sure that it is going somewhere sufficient. I mean, that's why, you know, in North Carolina, we don't have any teachers because we've underpaid them for so many years. And so now that, you know, we have gotten behind to see that, like in Guilford County, they were holding like $9 million off to the side to hire correctional officers in the jail, which we know now correctional officers are short-staffed. They don't want to, that's not something sure. they want to do anymore. And so we were able to advocate that they take that money and pay the bus drivers and the teachers and the cafeteria people, give them a raise because you're just holding on to $9 million hoping that you can hire some correctional officers in the jail but then your children are lacking from not having teachers and, you know, teachers are going to different states because they need to get paid as well. So as a community, you got to see where your money is going. I think that for so long we've gotten tied up that, oh, well, they're the government and they're the city council and county commission. They're going to do everything they're supposed to with my dollars. And they don't. <laughs> they don't. So you have to police them as well. Let them know that you're watching what they're doing with your money and you have to tell them where you want it to go. If you don't tell them, then they're going to spend it on whatever they feel like spending it on. And it's not going to, it's not going to help pe marginalized people at all. <laughs> you know, you're, you're going right. to have yeah. high apartments. Yeah. You're going to have parking decks and all this stuff that your downtown looks great, but your, your people are in jail, <laughs> you know? Yep. That's so, right. Um, just like Guilford County, um, they were building a new sheriff's department across from the jail that they built. And now I heard that that's on a halt. So I don't know. I'm guessing some people got behind that and was like, oh, I don't need a new sheriff's department, yeah. you know? No. So, um, yeah, it, just, it takes it takes everybody working together. We have to get out of working out of the whole silo thing and working individually and work together to achieve what we want out of our justice system, out of the United States. It all comes with us working together and, and throwing away our biased thoughts, because I think a lot of people do get caught up in their biased thoughts just by what they see or what they've heard or what they've seen prior. And so that can kind of distort what you're, what you're really thinking and what you really should understand. So I think it's very important for everybody to get involved in anything that has anything to do with social justice in the community to make sure that everybody's being treated fairly, whether you're Black, white, Mexican, Purple, green, you know, everybody deserves the chance to have to be treated fairly. I don't care what color you are. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Tom. Well, I thank you for coming on here and just kind of breaking it down for a lot of people because a lot of people just really don't understand the justice system and it can be complicated to understand. Um, but I thank you for giving it to us from a public defender's point of view of, you know, what you've seen and, and how we can kind of move forward 
let the audience know where they can find your amazing book and how they can follow you and anything else you want to tell them. Oh, just to, to say that I, I think we can't leave the justice system. The, we can't leave the system and its results in the hands of prosecutors and judges because we've seen, unfortunately, what a mess they can make of things. We need to take it back. We need to take the steps and do the things we can do to change it. And right now, uh, as I've alluded to, Brady violation, withholding favorable evidence is the primary, the leading cause of wrongful convictions in this country. Uh, prosecutors are routinely withholding evidence and judges are letting them get away with it. And that's something that legislation can change. We can require prosecutors to disclose all their information. And that will only happen though when people get involved. And when we get involved, we can make the system better but we can't leave it up to the professionals or they're gonna to continue to promote the kind of injustice that we see far too often. So get involved, educate yourself, learn, and we can make the system better. Agree with everything you said, Tom. This has been a, a joy talking to you. Um, I thank you again and again and again. Thank you so much uh, for coming on and just sharing your knowledge with the audience. And I mean, I hope that this is a start to something different. I mean, you know, we're in 2023, we can make it a better, we can make it a better system in 2024, 2025 and beyond, but we have to get involved um, as a community and stand together and stand behind our people. Great. And thank you so much, Sierra, for having me on. Thank you, Tom. Have a good day. You too. So thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Your host, Sierra Cobb. Take care.